Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the Desert Island Investor, the podcast where Mark Atkinson talks about his private investment portfolio. And good afternoon, Mark. Afternoon to you again, Paul. Okay, so it's obvious that the first question has to be, what on earth is that product shown in the thumbnail for this episode of the podcast? Yes, Paul. Well, that's a thermostatic controller that you'll no doubt have bought at some time because it's a key component in every electric kettle. So that's the thing that turns the kettle off when it boils. Yes, and it's been designed by a company I'm going to talk about today, which is called Strix, which is a a ticker symbol kettle, K-E-T-L, which is a belter, isn't it? I'm not always sure that you knew what a a kettle was, Paul. We worked together for many years, uh, but they're based on the Isle of Man. Okay, so what are the base numbers for Strix? Right, well, it has a market capitalisation of 220 million. The PE is nine, and it has a yield of 6.0, and that's based on the current share price of one pound and one pence. And they were first listed in 2017. When did you invest? Yeah, floated on AIM in 2017. I generally avoid IPOs as very often I feel there has been some window dressing and the timing of the float is chosen when the company's in the best perhaps temporary circumstances but in Strix's case it floated at a pound and was off to something of a flyer so I had a good look at it you know sat on my hands perhaps too long and I first invested in July 2018 at £1.62 and topped up again in May 2019 at £1.71. Now, looking at my Yahoo Finance chart, Strix was on the up, and then it looks like it became another victim of COVID. So what's the story there? Yes, uh, they peaked at around £3.85 uh, in mid-2021. And as you say, the fortunes have changed for various reasons. Now, the current price is just you know a pound and a penny. So this is one of my smaller holdings that's, that's got a bit smaller. Now, they have a factory in China where COVID restrictions have been prolonged. Uh, The cost of living crisis has perhaps meant that people have deferred buying that new kettle. And then there's the war in Ukraine, which has been unhelpful. This has resulted in around £5 million loss in turnover around that region. And Strix, through recent acquisitions and a a new factory, have taken on uh, substantial, substantial debt. But despite being underwater with this one, you you recently added to your holding. What what prompted that decision? Yes, well, uh, as you may have noticed, the raft went missing once again, and that's because uh, I was invited to an investor site visit of the Strix facilities on the Isle of Man. And subsequent to that, their AGM was the following day. So I was on the Isle of Man for five days, two of which were taken up with Strix. And after those two events and, and some reflection, I wasn't sufficiently impressed and encouraged to add to my holding it again at 98 pence. So what's the history of Strix? Yeah, well, historically, um, they date back to 1951 when it was known as Castletown Thermostats, where they invented a thermostat to control heated flying suits to prevent pilots from passing out at high altitude. They later became Strix and the dominant player in temperature controls for kettles. Uh, When they came to the market, they were something of a one-trick pony. But recently, they've made several acquisitions in appliances and water filtration. And this has made them a larger and more rounded business. 
and it's envisaged these acquisitions will account for around 50% of the business. So all these acquisitions may be lower margins than on the traditional kettle control side. They're expected to have higher growth rates. Now, I believe the core component of the kettle controller featured on the thumbnail is a, is a small bimetal widget designed by the company's founder, John Taylor. Yes, we had a, a presentation with uh, Nick Gibbs, Andrew Hewins and Ray Dahl, where they talked about the history of the bimetal blade and how it functions how they assiduously protect their IP with a budget of around £500,000 a year. Uh, of course, their patents, policing the market and having infringements withdrawn. Now, Strix will scour the likes of Amazon for any new kettles. Then they'll buy one, take it to pieces, and if they find if there are any infringements, then they'll uh, ensure that these are immediately withdrawn from the market. Uh, then they generally enter into a dialogue with the offender and suggest that in order to allow continuity of supply, they use Strix product. Now, this is a tried and tested and a successful modus operandi. Then we went on to product development and uh, making the, the, the products ever more efficient. Perhaps you're, if you're familiar with that kettle that's obviously reached boiling point and it's juddering and bouncing on the kitchen top. Well, th- this is when it's used its most electricity, unnecessarily unnecessarily and Strix can rectify this uh, the price of the Strix product remains the same whether it's in a budget kettle or a luxury brand and it was interesting that when a kettle fails it's usually down to a, another component and not the Strix part the Isle of Man are uh, very proud of John C Taylor I, I believe in 2017 the Isle of Man post office released a series of six stamps to honor his achievements Yes, given that the Isle of Man is a small island with about you know, 85,000 employees, you know, Strix have had a high profile. And given the success and the, the role of their employer, you know, they're, they're, they're well known. And perhaps those that haven't heard of Strix may have heard of Eddie Davis. Yes, Paul, the late Eddie Davis, he was the former CEO and, and chairman of Strix. Uh, you're a, a Boltonian, Paul. And, I, uh, I, I, live, I live in Bolton. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that, Paul. Sorry to. Uh, I don't know if I've offended you or not. Or whether you're just correcting me. No, not at uh, all. Uh, but you currently live in Bolton, right? And uh, he was born not too far from you in Little Lever, and later educated in in Farworth. And he made his fortune through Strix and became a high-profile philanthropist. He was awarded an OBE and CBE and donated money to the. Victoria and Albert Museum and the Royal Bolton Hospital and also became the majority shareholder in Bolton Monday's Football Club. So I suppose that's perhaps the the epitome of a charitable cause. And the site visit, was that enlightening? Yes, I learned a great deal and it was a good use of my time. Uh, taxi collected us from our hotel and took us to the HQ that's at Castletown, which is in the, uh, the south, conveniently across the road from the airport. And we met CEO Mark Bartlett, CFO Raudus Wong, and Harry Kiriakou, who is the Chief Commercial Officer and MD of Consumer Goods. Uh, there were about 15 en- attendees. Uh, unfortunately, a flight from Gatwick was cancelled that morning, and there were nine absentees due to that. But I suppose, if anything, it, it allowed me more time with management. So we were split into two groups. I was in the first, and we went to Ramsey, where the components are manufactured. So are they a large employer? They employ about 50 in Ramsey, uh, where the production's done, and 60 at, at head office. Uh, they used to employ around 800 on the Isle of Man, 
until the bulk of manufacturing assembly moved to China. Now, my understanding is that they employ around 600 to 618 in China, depending on seasonality, around 200 in Australia, 60 in Italy, and a further 60 in Wolverhampton. Uh, then we went through to the production facility to see that the blades being manufactured, and this was hosted by Anne Shields and Engineer Sid. And it really was impressive how the, the batches have traceability. In case there's any defects, um, you, I could, you know, as you can imagine, electricity and water going into a kettle, it's important. You know, they, they, they could determine that the date, time, machine, employee, source of materials, and even the room temperature. And once a week, you know, the finished product is shipped out to China where it's to be assembled with the, the rest of the finished product. So the patent on the blade itself has long expired, but even though other companies can make them, the blade still needs to be incorporated into a, a controller mechanism. And it and it's that design that Strix holds patents on. Correct. Yeah, they've got around 150 patents in place with another 50 being processed. Now, the patents last for 20 years. Now, we often hear about a patent cliff in pharmaceuticals, and I asked if they ever found a, a large number of their patents maturing at the same time. Now, they, they said that this did occur back in 2015, but the advice is that when the patent expires, it's not generally problematic as they've become so ingrained with their customer over, over the preceding 20 years. So my understanding of the patents is that it's often around very subtle differences in the positioning of the blade that affects the overall conductivity efficiency and performance of the kettle so i often ask you um, whether your choice of investment uh, company has a moat so do strix have a moat full of boiling water oh nice one paul no but it's not it's their uh, it's their patents and their success in ensuring their enforcement what's the market share then in kettle controllers how how is that split well market share by value is 56%, you know, so it's over half the market. And by volume, it's 38%, which, which suggests it's a, a, an added value product. And of the split um, where, around the world where that, that, that comes from, 70% is defined as regulated. That's a more a, advanced uh, market that they're dealing. Um, 70% is... Sorry, 70% is regulated, 40% is their market value in China, and 35% is what they classify as unregulated. Now, there's uh, lots of big markets there that haven't been exploited yet, and very few sales are in, 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 of kettles in America. So Strix estimate that one in 10 of the world's population use their products every day. Now, that's an amazing footprint for what is a relatively small business. Now, I can't think of a similar size to smaller business having that kind of reach. So perhaps if one of our listeners can think of an example, they'll drop us a comment. I asked Google why so few Americans use electric kettles, and the answer was quite interesting. came across a very good YouTube channel called Technology Connections. Um, you could probably just search for that in YouTube and you'd find it, but I will put a link in the notes. Um, and the chap who, who runs that has done an excellent uh, uh, explanation of why Americans don't use kettles. And, and it, it's not what you think. They do have a 120-volt a power supply, which is weaker than ours. Uh, and in America, it takes about four minutes to to boil a litre of water in an electric kettle. And in the UK, it's about two minutes, so it, it, twice as fast. 
But the main reason is the fact that the only beverage that really needs boiling water is tea. And not many Americans drink tea. Yes, being British, it's easy to assume that the whole world enjoys you know, a nice cup of tea. Uh, but lots of countries are predominantly coffee drinkers. However, in certain markets, tea is experiencing growth in sales, often as it's seen as having health benefits, uh, especially herbal teas. And it was, in fact, it was explained that herbal teas don't require boiling water and the best performance is reached with water at 80 degrees uh, Celsius. So uh, let's think infusion, Paul. Presumably it was then back to Castletown? Yes. We had a, a presentation by Harry Kiriakou, who I said is the MD of the consumer goods. And then there were demonstrations of various consumer goods, uh, including kettles, toasters, water jugs and filters, irons, hot or multifunction taps, baby formula makers and sterilizers. So many of these are results of recent acquisitions. Then we also had a, a presentation by Matt Thomas, who is the China Operations Director, and uh, he talked about the new factory that was completed back in 2021. So unlike the previous factory, which was leased, this is owned. Now, I asked about the proximity to the old factory and the retention of staff and was told they, that it's around 40 minutes apart, and they'd managed to retain nearly all their key staff. Now, as you'd expect, China is the dominant country for kettle manufacturer and that accounts for 93% of the market. Uh, other other manufacturing occurs in South Africa, Turkey, Malaysia and Poland. Anyway, after that we finished with a tour of uh, quality control. Now I read that Strix had acquired several related businesses. Yes, uh, back in 2019 they made a small acquisition of a company called uh, Halo Sorcerer. Uh, based in Seattle, and that was a water filtration business for $1.3 million. Now, they use bromide beads, and the applications not, are not only for, for our consumer products, but also farming and used in troughs in China for poultry and pigs to avoid contamination. Then in 2020, uh, they purchased a business called Leica, which are based in Vicenza. Uh, that's an established business about 40 years ago. And they are into water purification and small appliances. And that cost 31.6 million euros. Now, this was funded through uh, 23.6 million euros of cash and also 8 million euros worth of strict shares. Now, we're all given a a Leica filtering bottle to take home and I'm uh, looking forward to trying it. And then lastly, uh, in 2022, Billy, that's B-I-L-L-I, which are based in Melbourne, another established business dating back to 1989. And their business is hot taps or hot and cold taps or sparkling taps or water on demand, you could describe it as, and that costs £38.9 million sterling. Now, that was funded through a mixture of debt and an equity raise. Now, that was a forced sale due to the conditions of a merger between two businesses called Culligan and WaterLogic, and Strix paid the equivalent of 3.8 times EBITDA and felt this was something of a steal. So, you know, it looks as though they were very much in the right place at the right time for this. And I spoke to Richard Sells, who's one of the non-executives, and said, uh, you know, you, you were helped that this was a, a forced, forced sale and the clock was ticking. And he said, look, the clock was chiming. So additionally, Strix have secured uh, 
this deal, this deal, despite other bidders submitting a, a significantly higher price. Now, Billy products are very much added value and at prices between £1,500 and £4,000 and are aimed at both residential and commercial businesses. And um, in New Zealand, they said they just won their biggest ever contract to supply a hospital. Are there any caveats to these new ventures, do you think? Well, the acquisitions and building of the new factory in China, which is owned instead of leased, have resulted in debt the year end of $87.4 million. Now, there will be no further acquisitions or capex now until that net debt to EBITDA, which is at 2.2 at the year end, falls to below 2.0 for 2023 and 1.5 for 2024. Now, debt can be unforgiving if things go wrong or the unexpected happens. Uh, COVID-19 caught a lot of businesses out that were saddled with debt and highly leveraged. However, I think if Strix can remain highly cash generative and quickly pay down that debt, then this will uh, gain some confidence and hopefully a re-rating. Now, acquisitions don't just involve servicing the debt, but absorbing these new operations into the wider business, especially as they are in disparate places. However, the message I received was that this was going very, very smoothly. So, given the history of the company, they they mentioned the um, they had a successful transition from flying jackets to kettle controls. But, but sometimes a change in direction for a business can backfire. Do you, do you think Strix has sufficient expertise and knowledge in in water and uh, domestic appliances? Yes, given Strix's work in the kettle market, I, I don't think that you know it's that far removed from the from the markets that that, that they've, they've moved into, and they deal with around six hundred brands and retailers. Now, when you look at uh, Harry Kiriakou's CV, he's worked for Glendimplex and been responsible for brands like New World, Belling, Stobbs, Britannia, Leck, Morphe Richards, and, and Roberts Radio. Uh, previous to that, he's worked for Whirlpool in Indesit and Philips. So this is somebody who's got appliances under his fingernails. Now, additionally, uh, Richard Sells, who's one of the non-execs, he was the chief innovation officer at Electrolux and ran Electrolux's refrigeration business and was chairman of Amdia, which is the Association of Manufacturers of Domestic Appliances. So I'm confident that within the top team, there's su- sufficient experience you know, sometimes in, as an investor, you've got to try and look at the world through other people's eyes. Now, I'm of a certain age and, and happy to drink what I call corporation pop from the tap and not use a filter. Also, I, I, I doubt I'd stretch to a hot tap, but uh, other people really value these things. So I'm just wondering, as a marketing man, have you any thoughts? You know, I suppose the quality of the water from the tap would reduce the number of plastic bottles we use. And that's a major focus for the world today. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it is. Um, I don't. I can't see myself spending one point five thousand pounds on a tap of any sort. To be honest with you, uh, but I'm, I'm from London, where the water is hard, and, and you do get problems with limescale building up on the inside of kettles and heating systems. But the tap water where I live in Bolton is lovely, and I, I don't know how it fares contaminant-wise, but it, it's crystal clear and tastes really good. So. I can't imagine ever buying a water filter myself either. Um, and to be honest with you, I think buying wa- bottled water in the UK is a, is, a, is a modern bad habit encouraged by the £1.6 billion UK bottled water industry. 
Um, they've been playing the health card for decades to convince people they risk death from dehydration if they don't buy a, a, a plastic bottle of water every day. I mean, I've no idea how p- people of my grandfather's generation stayed alive without carrying containers of water around with them. I, I really will never know. Um, but I think it's like like most Brits would have experienced when they go on holiday. You know, they're going to wind up somewhere where the water tastes a bit funny. Um, so I, go, I did Google this, and I came up with just just one example, which is in Palmer in Mallorca. And according to statistics published by Palmer Town Hall, the average Palmer resident currently consumes 175 litres of water a year from plastic bottles. Mm. Uh, there are 480,000 residents. So if they all bought water in one litre bottles, that's 8,400,000 plastic bottles a year. So if the water can be improved, by using a water filter, it should, in theory, have a consequential eco-benefit in that it reduces the amount of, of, of bottled water that's purchased, and that would definitely be a good thing. I, I will put a link in the in the show notes if you want to go off and look at those statistics yourself. And that's just like that's just one Spanish holiday destination. So, and if you, I haven't even bothered to look at what the, the global situation is, um, and it also depends on whether or not the filter can actually can actually improve matters because I have been on holiday to Calador uh, in Mallorca and there the water tastes very salty. And um, apparently if you got there's again, I'll, I'll put a link. There's a, a couple of com- comments about this on, on TripAdvisor from locals who, who live there. And they say that although a water filter will get rid of any sediment and contaminants, it's, it's, they don't think it's very likely to make the water taste any better. So, um, I don't know, really. I mean, maybe Strix could put us right on that. Yeah. So filters, perhaps, but things like hot taps between you know one and a half and four. That you, you put that in, perhaps in the realms of items of conspicuous consumption, would you? I, I definitely would. I think probably you know for corp, for companies, perhaps yes, or it, yes for those people who have kitchens that I couldn't even dream of. There is one good thing about living in Bolton, then. Bolton, uh, lovely water. Any surprises at the AGM? Well, there were only three shareholders present, myself, uh, David, who I'd met before and spent some some time with whilst I was in the Isle of Man, and Peter, uh, who lives on the Isle of Man, and he actually hosted us for the rest of the day and treated me to a a very nice lunch. Um, But I suppose that was down to, you know, a lot of the real value being gleaned the previous day at the investor site visit. Uh, There was no real surprise in the AGM statement. They alluded to you know green, green shoots and, and improved trading uh, with uh, quarter two up on quarter one, and the expectations of profits after tax for the year were given us twenty five point eight million. Uh, there weren't a lot of questions during the AGM, as again lots had been covered the previous day, but it was useful to clarify a few issues and. Uh, if, I, if I was unsure about one or two things and uh, and I thought about them overnight and it was nice to informally uh, afterwards meet and converse with our non-execs. And uh, subsequent to this, as a shareholder, I was invited to the opening of the new showroom in Farringdon, uh, which was a nice touch. So the strict share price has been something of a roller coaster ride and you're currently sitting on a loss, mm. but you seem quite relaxed. A lot of investors would have bailed out when they saw the chart dip, but you're a bit more philosophical about it. Yes, Paul. You know, I've been investing uh, long enough to understand that it's not an exact science. Um, now, some people in life are, are bipolar. 
and either in a state of euphoria or depression. And uh, I, I don't t- tend to operate that way through life. I'm, I'm in a very narrow band. And I think this is a, a quality that's been particularly useful with my investing. Now, uh, you know, on one hand, I don't get carried away when a stock goes on a moonshot and I think I'm a genius. And likewise, I, I don't beat myself up when a stock slumps. So I think it's best if you can tr- control your emotions and, and don't let them control you. Now, one of the benefits of being a private investor is that you've nobody to answer to or report to. I conduct my own appraisal every year and I have a, a track record that I think has allowed me a nice lifestyle. But when we started doing the Desert Island Investor, you know, we, we openly said in episode one, if you go back to that, that we will be talking about the good and bad experiences. And I want this to represent what it's like to be a real investor with real money and not some kind of romantic, mythical fairy tale. It would have been disingenuous if I had gone to the Isle of Man for five days, uh, based around attending investor site visit at an AGM, and then instead of discussing that, uh, you know, uh, that stock, you know, cherry picking a, a winning investment uh, or, or a, a stock that's been basking in the sun at the current moment in time, and, and there are one or two. So um, hopefully, this is something that real investors can relate to. You know, th- this isn't a model portfolio with monopoly money, but a genuine portfolio. You know, I'm dealing with the, you know, the hard-earned wealth, and that really concentrates the mind. And, and perhaps as an example of, of how long I've been investing, you know, just a bit of an anecdote. You know, in 1999, you know, one of my largest investments at the time was Stackis Hotels. And they'd been taken over by a Hilton Group, and there was an extraordinary general meeting at the Stackis in Dunblair, which I attended. Now, being in hospitality and leisure, as you would expect, it was a very lavish affair and highly attended, given the, the vote on the takeover and the premium shareholders were expecting. And Stackers had a number of casinos and share, you know, shareholders were, um, were given assorted chips by the croupiers, you know, some of them blue. And as we tried our hand at roulette with that, that steel ball mesmeric rotating in the opposite direction of the wheel, you know, I, I was around, randomly plonking down these chips, you know, with 20, 50 and 100 pounds because it didn't really matter. Now, I'm pretty sure that if it was real money, I would have thought out some kind of strategy. And I'm pretty sure that, that you know, the house would have still have won, by, but I may have lost my money a little bit slower. You know, so it does, it does concentrate the mind when it's, you know, it's real money that you're dealing with. Very true. Mark, thank you very much indeed for that uh, detailed analysis of Strix. And can you just remind me what the... Um, <laughs> what the... <laughs> What, what the ticker symbol is yeah. again. Make a note of this one, Paul. Yeah, I'll, I'll write it down this time. Yeah, kettle, K-E-T-L. All right. And mine's a, mine's a wheat coffee with plenty of milk, no sugar. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Right, so we're going to go straight into a uh, question in a, a bottle. And uh, let's see what's in the bottle today. It's a question from uh, David Raywood, and David asks, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on averaging down your share price in a company by buying more shares in the company when the share price is falling in value below what you bought previously. So what thought processes do you go through when deciding if averaging down will be possibly worthwhile or best avoided? Right. Firstly, thank you, David, for your question and for your support. It's appreciated. My personal opinion 
And it is just my personal opinion on averaging down is that it's a very dangerous tactic, especially if you're ignoring the fundamentals and the, the prospects of the business and you're blindly averaging down, just trying to rescue a position where you find yourself in the red. And you could say it's a bit like a gambler who's trying to double his bets in a casino. It can easily end in ruin. So at source, I try and identify the hangups that investors experience by having a loss on their books. And very often, I think it's why some investors have stopped losses, and it's simply to expunge a loss from the portfolio. Uh, I understand it can be like a dagger to the heart. And when you're looking at that screen, that, that red negative is searing and burning into your eyes. So perhaps conversely, and I'm not trying to be defeatist, but I think it's best to be realistic. And, and I try and accept that losses do occur and you need to accept them and that they're part and parcel of investing. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a failure or foolish if, if you're a suffer, suffer a loss. You know, some excellent investors only have a 60 to 40 winners to losers record. So as an investor, I would suggest that, you know, going long, if you go long, the odds are in your favor because you can only lose 100% on a stock. But if, if, you, if you pick a winner, there's no ceiling to it and it can multi-bag. So I'd look at your performance across the whole portfolio. Now, often it should be that winning stock that you're adding to and not the loser. So in effect, you're averaging up as, a, as opposed to averaging down. There's a famous saying, water the flowers and not the weeds. So sometimes it's simply best to accept that on this occasion, you know, you've got it wrong, take it on the chin, try to best to learn from the experience and move on. And there shouldn't be any form of ridicule because you're managing your own portfolio. Nobody else should have visibility of it. So it's a case if you're comfortable with it, then that's it. You know, you haven't got to answer to anybody else. So I wouldn't fall into the trap of becoming anchored to your buy price. And this obsession with, you know, I've got to get level, I've got to get level. The best decision on whether to buy or sell a stock should be down to its fundamentals and its prospects and not the price you paid for it. Once you've bought a stock, then there's you've no control over its fortunes. Now, evaluating your success in stock selection is very much different to, you know, when you do did your tests and exams at school or when you see customer satisfaction reviews, health and safety records, or your attendance at work, or brand awareness, you can score very, very highly in these walks of life. You know, you can spend, score 95 plus, perhaps even 100%. So, you know, in my experience, excellence in investing is at a much lower percentage level. So it's easy to become brainwashed that, you know, I've got to be in the 90% to be successful. So I'm not saying that should never add to an existing position if it's in the red. You know, it's something I've frequently done over the years, but only if I'm convinced sufficiently in the long-term prospects of the business. There again, I may stay of call it wrong, but at least I've invested for the right reasons and not simply to, simply to try and avoid denting my pride. Okay, David, I hope that answers your question. Well, that's all for this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Please remember the content is for information only and it is not financial advice. If you would like to pop a question into a bottle for Mark, just post your question in the comments and hopefully it'll reach the island in time for the next episode. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.